from WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, Thomas Mann, founder of Politics NC, returns to discuss North Carolina politics and the midterm elections. After that, George Washington University law professor Charles Craver joins me to discuss the recent Supreme Court ruling upholding bans on class action suits against employers. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to The Public Morality. Several states, including my home state of North Carolina, recently concluded their primary elections, the precursor to the midterms in November. Though we are months away from being within legitimate range of prognosticator accuracy, I thought it was a good time to bring back my good friend Thomas Mills to discuss the midterm elections in general, in North Carolina specifically. Mills is founder of Politics NC, one of the most popular and influential blogs in the state of North Carolina. Full disclosure, my weekly column is featured on the Politics NC website. Thomas Mills, welcome back to the Public Morality. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Uh, you have been noted, uh, at least by, by, by my account, for more than a year uh, of, of defining the 2018 election, specifically here in North Carolina, as a blue moon election. Right. For, for those yeah. who may be unfamiliar with the term, what is a blue moon election, and do you see North Carolina as any type of indicator for midterm elections at large? Okay, well, first, a blue moon election is a year when we have nothing major at, at the top of the ticket, no statewide race at the top of the ticket. Every 12 years, we don't have a governor's race or U.S. Senate race uh, driving the electorate. So historically, we see extremely low turnout because the drivers tend to be local races, legislative races, congressional races, and you also have uneven turnout. You'll see areas where you've got really competitive sheriff's races or county commission races where turnout's high. You'll go into other areas where there's not much competitive, and you'll see just really abysmally low turnout. So that's what a blue moon election is. And the last uh, three of them, 2006, 1994 and 1982 were all wave elections. And uh, they're saying this year looks like it could be a, a wave election. And I don't know that North Carolina is necessarily an indicator for the rest of the country, but, mm -hmm. but I can tell you that all off-year elections have slightly decreased turnout, and North Carolina is going to have probably lower than most states. And, and when you have a situation like that, the side that has the most momentum tends to win, and they win big. And right now, uh, most pundits think that the Democrats have, have that momentum and uh, are poised to pick up a number of seats in Congress at, at, at the federal level and uh, even seats in the legislature here in North Carolina. Well, you sort of touched on this, but— um you know, in, in my in my writings, I've also I've often said that the difference between Republicans and Democrats um, 
is that uh, Republicans can't govern and Democrats can't win. Uh, <laughs> right. And, and, and so, as you just stated, uh, many pundits think that uh, we might have a blue wave uh, during the midterm. But as you well know, n- no uh, congressional majority has ever been decided in May. So, so what are you looking at for the next several months to lead us up to the midterm that will determine which way this might go? You know, without anything, I mean, midterms are generally driven by whatever's happening at, 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 the, at the national level anyhow. But in North Carolina, it's especially that way because there's nothing, there's no buffer. So whatever people are feeling about what's going on with the president or with Congress, it filters straight down into the elections. There's no buffer. I mean, if, if we had a, had a, a governor's race or a Senate race, it might kind of deflect some of that because they have enough money and resources to maybe alter the conversation or filter the conversation. But there's nothing really filtering it as it comes straight down the top. So, you know, I think the things that you look at, um, there, there are two measures on, in polling that, that, we, that we look at. One is, is uh, the, the favorability of the president. And right now he's, he's inching up, but he's still in pretty dangerous territory. And the other, is, other one is the direction of the country, if it's right direction, wrong direction. Right track, and wrong people, track. Right. And, and people are starting to feel a little bit better about the direction of the country. Um, I just read something by a Republican pollster who said we're in uncharted territory because usually uh, the favorability of the president is, is, is 8 to 10 points higher than the people who feel like it's on the right track. And we're seeing something. We've got a president who's probably less popular than the people who think it's on the right track. So it leaves us a little bit unknown. But but you know those are those are the measures to watch for. And it and it really is the outcome of this election. I would almost bet uh, is is going to be a reflection of where where people are in October as far as ha- their satisfaction with the economy, with the president, with Congress with things that are far bigger than just North Carolina politics. Well, you know, I was going to ask you this later, but I'll, I'll jump to it now. I mean, one of the, seems to me, one of the conundrums uh, that we have, at least at, at the national level, uh, is that President Trump gets high approval marks for his handling, or at least higher approval marks for his handling of the economy, but yet his overall job rating is, is much lower. So at the end of the day, do people vote because they like the guy or they like their pocketbook? What's been your experience? Um, you know, I, I don't really know. I mean, I think it's like it's like that Republican pollster said. It, 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 it's two usually moving, you know, move together, and we're not really seeing that right now. Um, we're seeing a, a. It's hard to know whether they're going to vote with with their pocketbook or, or to to feel like they're reeling in Trump in some way, and that's. You know that I think that's what leaves a, a, a certain amount of uncertainty um, heading into this election cycle. Now, you you mentioned polling. Is is there any way um, when you look at when you look at polling, is there any way to, to capture the enthusiasm of a particular party? Can you capture that in polling? You know, I think it's hard to. I mean, I, I think we put too much stock into polling, um, but. I mean, there's there some there's some measures you can look at. 
a lot of times one of the early questions in a poll is um, how likely are you to vote? And they exclude anybody who says they're not likely. But you'll see people who are who are uh, who say they're 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 very excited to go vote. It gives you some indication of enthusiasm. And uh, you look at the look at the in, in other polling questions, look at the kind of the extreme measures. Are they, are they very excited about the president? Are they they very angry at the president as as opposed to just angry? And and right now, most of that again, uh, Democrats seem to be favoring it. But I, I, th- I think it's hard. I think it's hard to measure enthusiasm with polling. In in recent um, mid midterms, Democrats have underperformed in uh, in in these elections. Yep. Uh, and what some uh, and what are some of the, the contributing factors do you see uh, for, for 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 the outcome this time around? Is is, is it just the enthusiasm? Is it just the anger? Um. I mean, I, I think I think there's some driving factors in here that we didn't really talk about. I think that the the Me Too movement and the Never Again movement are really uh, energizing sections of the population. I think women, in particular, are feeling that they're they're feeling a little bit empowered right now because they've been able to call out abusers and started to really put that on people's radar screens. And I feel like watching the elections, the primaries around the country. Um, over the last month, you've seen record numbers of women, women winning nominations. I think o- over half the uh, um, Democratic nominees for Congress in, in Indiana are women, and almost half of them in North Carolina are women, and, and almost half of them in Pennsylvania are women. So, you know, we, we've got a lot of, there's an enthusiasm among women. The other group and how that affects it's different than enthusiasm. I mean, I think maybe you'll have women that come out to vote who wouldn't normally vote. Do, do, do they break along partisan lines? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Um, the other the other group, the, the never again crowd, which is mainly younger people um, disturbed about gun violence. Now that's a different story. There, there were some there were some articles out this week. Uh, talking about the the number of young people uh, making up the new new voters, I think forty percent of the new registrants uh, this year have been, I think it was under thirty five, may have been under thirty, but they were younger voters. Now, if they actually come out and vote, uh, that that could make a difference. I mean, part of the part of the problem that the Democrats have had is is young people have become a major part of their um, of their coalition, and they're the ones who really tend to sit out the midterm elections, mm-hmm. and they don't they don't vote in huge numbers in presidential elections, maybe you know seventeen to twenty percent, but they midterm elections are down in single digits a lot of times. So if they come out, if you start seeing them show up at presidential level turnout, then, then that could really alter the election. I mean, and, and that's really what Democrats need to have happen if they want to have a very successful cycle is to have young people show up to vote. But um, they have not done that in the last few election cycles. 
If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Thomas Mills, founder of Politics NC, which is one of the most widely read blogs in North Carolina. And full disclosure, my column is also featured on Politics NC. Uh, Thomas, not too long ago, I had Steve Phillips on from the Center for American Progress. And his contention was Democrats needed to coalesce around what he called the Obama coalition, progressive whites, people of color. He saw that as key to their fortunes in many states. And I wondered, would that coalition hold true in North Carolina in, in your, in your um, analysis? You've got to expand on it in North Carolina. I mean, particularly this year, because we, that coalition may work in a general election, but it's certainly not going to work in these gerrymandered districts. You know, we can run up the score in areas that are already Democratic, but we're not going to win in, in urban suburban areas where, um, you know, where, where we've got we're going to have to peel off uh, white middle class voters and and not all working class. But we've got to peel some of these people off uh, that I that I think some of whom I really believe are, are swing voters anyhow. Uh, they may be conservative swing voters, but, but they'll, vote for the, they'll vote for a Democrat, if, particularly if the, if the opponent is, is a, a, a Republican who's out of the mainstream. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, part of, part of our problem is a party. I mean, the gerrymandering is a big problem. There's no question about it. But there, there is also the fact that our coalition is very disproportionately urban. Uh, you know, we live in college towns and, and, and cities, and, and Republicans have been very good at drawing districts that make sure that, that they're in, including areas outside of that. So we've got to, I mean, I mean we, we, could, we could drive the African-American vote up really high. We could, we, could, we could drive white liberals who were mainly in, in, in college towns and, and high-tech areas up really high. And all we would do is run our margins up in, in districts we're already winning. Uh, you, you talk about the impact that some of this redistricting, you, gerrymandering, uh, to use your term, uh, how has that impacted uh, the congressional districts? And, and, and I also want to talk about how that has impacted uh, the state legislature as well. Okay, well, Republicans did a masterful job of drawing districts for themselves when they got hold of the, the redistricting pen in, in 2011. And, and North Carolina was called the most gerrymandered state in the country. And, and they, this is not new. This has been going on since the beginning of the republic. And Democrats did a pretty good job of, of gerrymandering, too. Um, they never did as good a job as the Republicans have done this time, though. And uh, the, the, the biggest e example of that was in, 19, in, in 2012, uh, Democrats won a majority of congressional votes and only won four, of nine, four, four out of 13 congressional seats. So clearly, you know, the, the, the Republicans made the districts favor them um, at, against the will of the, of, of the voters. And we see the same thing in, in, um, in the, the legislative races. We see, I don't think either district 
I mean, may, maybe in the Senate they got 55% of the vote, but I don't think most time they, you know, the districts, the, it's like 52-48, 53-47 in terms of total vote for, for either the state house or the state Senate. And yet they've got Jerry uh, uh, veto veto-proof, proof. veto-proof majorities in both houses, which means, you know, uh, in the in the in the in the uh, House, it's more than sixty votes, and I mean sixty seats, and and in the um, Senate, it's it's uh, like thirty-three seventeen or something. You know, it's it's just it's really out of whack, and um, it's it's given the state. The Republicans a chance to drive the state far to the right of where most people really, uh, are ideologically. So, you know, to me, it's it's a it, it's a damaging form of government. Well, well, first of all, it seems to go back to your previous point about running up the score in certain areas and that really not having any broad impact throughout the state. Right. Yeah. Right. And because they what what they did is is. The way they did the gerrymandering in North Carolina is they basically took the African-American community <clears throat> and packed them into as few districts as they could, or, or making sure that instead of, instead of having any sort of balance, um, despite the fact that it's, you know, African-American community is pretty well distributed throughout the, uh, particularly any east of I-85, but they, they put them in as few districts as possible. Um, so as, as you drive the number of African-Americans who are predominantly Democrat up, you might run the score up in those districts, but you're not making any di- any difference in the in neighboring districts that um, where, where African-Americans were drawn out of them to, uh, to make sure that they had white, middle-class, working-class, voters that were voting predominantly Republican. Also, um, in terms terms of governing, um, there's no incentive, because if you have veto-proof majorities in in the legislature, there's no incentive to um, compromise with the governor. That's right. That's right. There's exactly. And and it's, it's one party, it's Really, it really leads to an authoritarianism almost, because there is no incentive. There's no incentive to moderate. In fact, the the problem with the uh, with, with the gerrymandering in primaries is is that in, in both sides, the 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 more conservative Republican tends to win a primary, and the more liberal Democrat tends to tends to uh, win win a Democratic primary. So. You have a hollowing out of the middle, and um, if the Republicans are, are governing, they're being governed by their most conservative faction, their 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 right flank, and uh, it, it's not really healthy for democracy. Uh, recently, uh, we had uh, what some fifteen thousand teachers uh, ascend on the state capitol. That's right. Uh, when you is that the type of enthusiasm that can carry to November, or, or or will that dissipate? How do you how do you see that, and, and what's the some of the long term ramifications of that? Um, 
you know, it's, it's hard to know whether it really carries all the way to November. I, I will say this. Historically in North Carolina, when elections have been about education, Democrats have done well. And if, if teachers and Democrats can make this election about our public schools, my guess is that Democrats will do well because they've been underfunded. And, uh, you know, Republicans had choices to make. And, and the choices they made were to shrink the size of government and give massive tax cuts to corporations and the wealthiest North Carolinians. And in doing so, when they shrunk the size of government, a lot of the shrinking was done in the public school system. So, you know, classrooms are hurting right now. Teachers' pay is, is uh, really about or below where it was uh, when you adjust for inflation 10 years ago. Per pupil spending is far below where it was two, 10 years ago. So you've got teachers spending uh, their funding basic classroom supplies out of their own pocket. You know, uh, I, I've had a, I've had a, some child in the public schools for most of the last 25 years. And I'll, I'll tell you, I've never seen PTAs struggling more to fill basic needs. When my oldest daughter was going through these schools, PTAs were, were there to supplement. And we would have kind of, after they had raised money for things, we would have pretty raucous arguments about what to do with it. Were we going to send kids on field trips? Were we going to add to the playground? Were they, but they were extras. You know, it was, a, it was a good thing. Now, PTAs are trying to fill, fill voids that are left. They're trying to make sure that, that, uh, that, that classrooms have paper and, and, and pens. They're, you know, they're trying to find basic supplies. And that's not good for our kids. That's not good for our schools. Uh, so you said in, in previous elections that uh, education, when, it, when education is, is, is sort of leading, one of the leading issues, Democrats tend to do well. What is that message in 2018? How, how do you keep education? Because for a lot of people, the education argument is one that becomes sort of amorphous. And, and what does that mean? And so how do you, how do you craft a message that appeals to, to voters across the state? Well, I think anybody who has kids in public schools knows that the public schools are hurting. I mean, that's, it's, it's, you, you can't really get away from it. And uh, there, there's con there are constant fundraising drives and everything. So I think what the message really is is that, you know, uh, North Carolina's 39th in, in per-pupil spending and 37th in, in, in teacher pay. In other words, we're in the bottom 25% in the country in per-pupil spending. And that's really unacceptable. And I think that, that's the message we need to drive is that, that we shortchanged our students and at the same time we've given massive tax cuts to the rich. Um, again, governing's a choice. Republicans made choices. They chose a very wealthy over, over, uh, over our schools. And, um, you know, that's what they did. Other, sta other states made different choices and have recovered from this recession just as well. Very few, very few gave... Uh, hit their public schools as much as the Republicans did in North Carolina. So, so for those who may be unfamiliar, the, the, there was a time where, where the funding, uh, North Carolina funding uh, per pupil, per pupil uh, was much higher than it is now. Much higher, yes. And, and, uh, and it was much closer to the national average. I think it probably exceeded the national average for a while in the late 90s, early 2000s. And, um, 
you know, and we had goals around education. Now I don't, I don't see anything. The biggest goals I have, I can see them, this belief that uh, competition solves everything, and I don't believe competition is necessarily the best answer for our kids in schools. When you have competitions, it by definition means you got losers. And why in the world we would choose a system where we're going to make make some of our kids losers and others winners is beyond me. You know, because you know who the losers are going to be. Right. They're going to be the ones in the poorest school systems. Uh, so, are there any um, races uh, at at the congressional level and or the state level that, that that you have a particular eye on that are coming up? Um, you know, I'm. I mean, I think the whole country's watching this race down in in, in uh, North Carolina nine, which is a big district. It's, Stretches from southeast Charlotte all the way into Robinson County, uh, down and down to um, down into Bladen County. So, uh, and Dan McCready's the Democrat running in that district, and the incumbent Republican Robert Pittenger just lost the primary to, to Mark Harris. And if you paid attention to North Carolina politics, um, Harris ran uh, in 2014. He ran in a primary and lost to Tom Tillis. And then he ran in 2014. He barely lost to Pittenger in 2014. So he, I mean, in 2016. So on his third try, he's now the Republican nominee. Now he's basically broke, and and McCready's banked over a million dollars. And and you know, McCready's an interesting politician. He's not a uh, he's not a politician. He's he's a he's an entrepreneur and, and marine. He's not a guy who spent a lot of time in government. Um, I think, uh, I talked to him early in his, in his race and, uh, when he was first trying to decide whether to get in, and it was pretty clear that he was motivated by what he felt like, uh, the election of Donald Trump disturbed him, but he was also very disturbed by the divisions within Congress. And this is a guy who, who, uh, he's a, he's an Iraqi war vet and, um, he's, he's, uh, he was, he was baptized in, in the Euphrates River in uh, in Iraq, uh, which is would appeal. I think would is a profile that would appeal to a lot of the more working class people in, in the district along the South Carolina line. Um, but he's also an entrepreneur, and he's uh, he's graduated from Duke and then went to Harvard and um, and and made his money uh, funding solar projects, which. In Charlotte, Southeast Charlotte, he he looks a lot like those people in Southeast Charlotte. I would argue that he looks a lot more like those people in Southeast Charlotte than Mark Harris does. And uh, it's the question is is, is Southeast Charlotte that traditionally votes Republican are they willing to cross lines for a guy like Dan McCreevy? Because they they are not Trump type people in Southeast Charlotte, and, and Mark Harris is going to run as as a uh, somebody who's going up there to protect the president. And, and he has a hard time, uh, and I think with, with the voters in Southeast Charlotte. So that that's a, you know, that's that's a contested race. The, the other one that everybody's looking at right now is uh, Kathy Manning running against Ted Budd, and that and that's an interesting race because Ted Budd's a freshman congressman, and he won uh, in a primary that was. In 2016, there were like maybe 13 or 14 people in the race. It was a winner-take-all race. Nobody knew who anybody was, 
and the NRA came in and spent a whole bunch of money on Bud, he ended up getting the uh, uh, Republican nominee, nomination, and his Democratic uh, challenger never really raised a ton of money. So he had kind of a free ride in, in 2016, which to his detriment left him unknown. People don't know who he is in that district. Now, Kathy Manning is a uh, woman who's been heavily involved in, in uh, civic activities and, and philanthropic uh, uh, programs in, in Greensboro. And uh, she's well-known in the community. She's well-respected. And she, too, like, like McCready, has raised a ton of money. She's got over a million dollars, and she's got a lot more than Bud's got. So... You know, I think the question in, in both the, the Bud and the, um, the, the, the race in 9 and the 1 in 13 is, are the Republicans going to come to their rescue? Because they're certainly going to get outspent. And, um, you know, they, right now they've got to defend a whole lot of seats. And the Republicans are probably going to have to make some tough decisions. Um in, in the fall about where they spend money. And if if Bud or uh, Mark Harris doesn't start carrying his own weight, carrying their own weight, then the Republicans might take a pass, in, in which case we'd get interesting seats. The the, the one emerging race that, that is coming out is in, in North Carolina 8. And uh, that, in just the last few weeks, uh, Two of the Washington prognosticators have moved that one up from safe Republican into likely Republican, which isn't a huge move, but it means they're paying attention to the race. And uh, I think the reason is, is a guy named Frank McNeil is now the nominee. And Frank raised $250,000 in the first quarter, which was also his first quarter in the race. Now, it's not numbers like McCready and uh, Manning are pulling down, but it was that's a solid that's a solid haul, especially when he had a primary. And um, you know McNeil fits the district. He, he's from Moore County. Uh, this is another one of these big long gerrymandered districts that runs from the northern suburbs of Charlotte all the way over to uh, Fayetteville. Um, the way he wins that race is he needs to win the the eastern part of the district, Fayetteville and Hoke and Moore counties. By a larger margin, then he loses the eastern part, which is Cabarrus and Rowan and Stanley, and uh, Montgomery kind of falls in the middle right there. But he's, you know, his family's been there a long time. He was mayor of Aberdeen. Um, he's got strong ties throughout Moore County, and he might be able to garner votes down there that that other Democrats could. And uh, he doesn't have to win Moore County. He just needs to outperform Democrats. And uh, he could give incumbent Richard Hudson a, a, a run for his money. So that's those are the three right now that are being looked at by Washington. One of the things, I guess, one of this is uh, my words, not yours, but one of my issues with the sort of national pundits, as you get the impression, is that one can be all against all things Donald Trump, and that will secure victory. So in these races that you just talked about, how do you find that balance? Uh, of, of not just being against all things Donald Trump, because that I don't think that's a path to victory. No, I don't either. I, I mean, I, I think, look, they, in those, and particularly in those districts, Donald Trump won every one of those districts. So 
you know, I don't, I don't think you become the most anti-Trump candidate. I think what they're going to have to do is they're going to have to do, they're going to have to focus more on Congress. And I think people are as frustrated with Congress today as they were uh, last last cycle. I mean, I think there's an overwhelming frustration that Washington's not really doing what it's supposed to do. And I would urge those candidates to run more against Washington and run against a dysfunctional Congress uh, than than running against Donald Trump. I would also tell them that, you know, they shouldn't hold back when they see things that they disagree with with the Democrats. I I think we're, you know, we're increasingly, uh, I don't know if it's nonpartisan, but it's... uh, We've got we, we we have a we have very tribal factions that are that are around the left and the right, but I think we have a broader middle that's just kind of disgusted with everybody, and 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 to win those districts, you got to win that middle, and and I think that's uh, you know, and, and and that's where the difference is between this the, the attitude that it's just we have to get our people to the polls, um. We have to get our people to the polls. I won't argue with that. We ought to be having, you know, Democrats should be having fierce ground campaigns and, and, and get out the vote efforts. But we got to win the argument, too. It, it's not just about uh, increasing turnout among our base. It's, it's, it's winning the argument with the middle. And, uh, you know, I think we gotta, we got to make the case that, that – um, there are things the American people want and that Democrats will do a better job of delivering. And I think, uh, and, or, or, or at the very least, Republicans are doing a, a, a poor job of getting them there. You know, I think they want, they want more affordable health care. I mean, that was what health care was kind of the driving issue up in Virginia back in November when Democrats did very well. Um, the, the election in Virginia was not about Donald Trump. It, it was largely about health care. And, uh, you know, I think they ought to be, be looking at that. They're talking about these large premiums going up. Republicans now control both houses of Congress and the White House. It's going to be very, very hard for them to put anything off on Democrats, particularly when they couldn't even pass a repeal bill that they ran on for, for eight years. That was Thomas Mills. Stay tuned for my discussion with George Washington University law professor Charles Craver. Welcome back. In a recent 5-4 decision, the Supreme Court delivered a major blow to workers' rights, ruling for the first time that workers may not band together to challenge violations of federal labor laws. I'm joined by George Washington University law professor Charles Craver to discuss this ruling and its potential impact. Professor Charles Craver, welcome to the public morality. Thank you. It's a pleasure talking with you. Let's begin with you providing us a distillation uh, uh, of the case uh, in question and the legal basis uh, that uh, where the Supreme Court derived their decision. Well, there were several cases that went up before the Supreme Court together, and what they involved is a effort to try and accommodate 
the Federal Arbitration Act with the National Labor Relations Act. What happened is these people were classified as professional employees, which meant under the Fair Labor Standards Act, which governs wages and hours, they weren't eligible for overtime pay for hours in excess of 40 in a week. And they then brought a, an action in federal court challenging that, and they wanted to have a class action. What happened is they had signed employment contracts initially requiring them to take all of their legal claims to private arbitration, and those provisions did not allow class arbitration. So each individual would have to bring an individual claim before an arbitrator. And the difficulty is most of these cases are not of substantial monetary value. They may have lost uh, you know, a number of hours of overtime pay, which means they would have gotten paid time and a half. But the individual would have to get a lawyer, and most lawyers aren't willing to take a case like this because either they would have to pay them by the hour or they wouldn't have a lawyer because they're not going to take it on a contingent fee basis since the amount per individual is so small. And the National Labor Relations Board had ruled that under Section 7, which guarantees workers the right to engage in concerted activity for mutual aid and protection, workers had the right to have class arbitrations just as they would have class actions in federal court. And this went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the lower courts were divided, and the Supreme Court was very divided. In a five-to-four decision, the majority held that the Arbitration Act enforces these agreements, and the National Labor Relations Act can't change that policy. Uh, well, when people hear uh, National Relations uh, Labor Act, uh, it, it's easy to, 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 to maybe to assume that we're, that we're talking about union workers. But, but uh, for those not following this case, this ruling goes well beyond union workers and potentially changes the employee-employee relationship for everyone. Is that, is that correct, sir? Yes, and these cases involve non-union people because if they had a union, they would have an arbitration provision in their collective bargaining contract but normally that doesn't prevent you from going to court. So if you have just normally the arbitration provision in a collective bargaining agreement simply authorizes the arbitrator to apply the terms of the contract. In fact, when I arbitrate, it says I cannot apply external law, whereas in most cases like this, the employer has required that you go to arbitration over federal and state legal claims because there aren't contract claims, really, because you don't have any individual contract rights, really. And so as a practical matter, these cases only apply, really, to non-union employees. Now, I, I can imagine someone listening to this broadcast might ask, well, well did, the, did the employees knowingly sign their rights away? How, how, did, how, did, how did that work? How did that come about? No, most of us who have signed employment contracts, including people like myself who are lawyers, you rarely read the contract carefully, and there are usually a number of pages and not such large print. They say sign the contract. It says you're employed. This is what your salary will be. Most people don't read the contracts carefully. Even if they do and they see the clause that says that all uh, claims of any kind will go through individual arbitration, most people don't even know what arbitration is, and they have no idea what a class action claim is. They just sign the contract because they need the job. Why don't you take a moment and, and uh, since you since you raised that, explain the difference between class action and, and, and arbitration. Well, I mean, you could have a class action arbitration and a class action in court. In court, under Rule 23 of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, 
if a large number of people are litigating the same issues, they can bring an action where you might have 100, 500, even 5,000 people in the class. And where you have a small value claim per person, that can then add up. Like a, a credit card company may have uh, taken some fee that they had no right to take or some other thing was done where each person lost 50 or or $100, and they're not going to bring a lawsuit over that. But if a 1,000 people or a million people bring those claims, then the court can hear it. In arbitration, not under a usual collective bargaining contract, but in private arbitration, you could allow a class case where all the people with similar claims with that particular party bring one case before an arbitrator. And the arbitrator decides that case just the way a federal court would if it were a class action under Rule 23. I, I would imagine uh, probably where we're most familiar uh, or, or, or in terms of the end of not knowing what we sign would be with consumer p- products. And so uh, unless some of us are diligent enough, I'm certainly not one of them uh, willing to read the fine print. I just want the product and, and get out the store or whatever the case may be. Um, we sort of give away those rights with consumer products. And didn't the Roberts Court back in 2011 address that issue as well? Yes, and you're right, Byron. That's one thing that people don't realize. When you have a credit card and you have all that small print, you normally agree to arbitration. When you go online and buy things through, I'm thinking like Amazon and places like that, normally it says that any grievances that arise under that agreement will be subject to private arbitration. And uh, so in this particular case, uh, you had... I guess, a tension between an understanding of the neighbor, uh, National uh, Relations Labor Act of 1933. 1935. 1935, excuse me, and the Federal Arbitration Act, was that 1925? 1925, Right. Uh, Talk about those, if you will, in their their genesis. Well, it makes this case very different from the case with with a credit card company or a purchaser of goods, is there... There's no other law like the National Relations Act. This applies to protect employees. So where you're an employee in the private sector under Section 7 of the National Relations Act, even if there is no labor organization, individuals have what are called collective rights. And there's a famous case involving the Washington Aluminum Company where there was no union. The workers were complaining about cold working conditions. The employer didn't give them enough heat, and they all walked out. And the Supreme Court held that those individuals who were involved in collective action protected under Section 7 of the National Labor Relations Act, which gives employees the right to engage in concerted activity for mutual aid and protection. And that's what the question was here. Are these employees trying to bring a group grievance before the arbitrator that would be covered under Section 7 of the National Labor Relations Act, which is what the National Labor Relations Board had actually ruled. Hmm. Now, how, how is it that this tension has never risen before, or has it? Because we're talking about uh, acts uh, one 95 years old, the other 85 years old, respectively. Have, have they ever been in tension before, like, like anything close, remotely close to this? Not that I can think of. And what happened was, in recent years, employers and I don't know whether their legal counsel put them before this, they really started discovering the impact of the Arbitration Act, and they started putting these provisions in the employment contracts because they wanted to take away the right of employees to bring civil rights claims, wage and hour claims, occupational safety and health claims, 
and many of those claims are brought before arbitrators. Uh, Professor Craver, could, could, could you also explain why arbitration is the preferred methodology of employers? Well, for two reasons. Number one, they're normally less expensive. You don't have a huge discovery process as you do before federal and state courts. It's also confidential. These are all private proceedings, and they don't want any adverse publicity, and that can be a very, very significant factor for employers. Uh, you said number one. Was there, is there another one? Is that Well, there's a second factor that comes into play here. In most cases, the workers don't know anything about arbitrators, so they may agree that they're going to pick someone from the American Arbitration Association or someone from the Federal Mediation Service list of labor arbitrators or someone from the, the National Academy of Arbitrators. And the fact of the matter is the employer knows the people involved, so they might get a list of four or five names. The employer will have ratings from a private association. It normally says which of these people are pro-employer, which are pro-workers, which are truly neutral. And if you represent the employer, you're going to try and pick an arbitrator that's pro-employer. I once had a case that was very strange. It was a unionized company, but the company head called me up and said, we have a contract with the union that if they want an expedited arbitration, we get to pick the arbitrator. And if we like the arbitrator, we use them over and over again. And I thought they were almost trying to bribe me, but I didn't say anything. It was a very simple case where the worker had been fired because they had filed a worker's compensation claim. I found that the discharge was unlawful, and I ordered the employer to reinstate them with full back pay. The employer called me up to make it clear they would never hire me again. In many of these cases where you have arbitrators who are now being selected primarily by the employers, if they want to continue to get a lot of work, they, they tend to rule in favor of the employers. Mm. Now, uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg had a rather stinging dissent that she read orally, uh, and in which Justice Neil Gorsuch, who wrote the, con uh, the, the majority opinion, uh, responded by suggesting that, like most apocalyptic warnings, her concerns will be proven false. And I wonder how, how you saw that, sir. It was a very, very strong dissent. And she raised some very, very significant issues. Now that only 6.5% of private sector workers in the United States are union members, compared to 35%, that was true in around 1955 to 1965, the vast majority of private sector workers are not represented by labor organizations. We also have a situation where because of automation and outsourcing of uh, work to foreign countries where they have lower labor costs, workers are feeling a lot of pressure to accept job offers when they get them. And so when they read that contract, even if they see the arbitration clause, they feel obligated to sign it. And they don't realize how much they're waiving their rights away because then they might bring a claim for wage and hour uh, uh, disparity, civil rights discrimination, as I said, occupational safety and health. And instead of being able to go to federal court, they have to go to a private arbitrator. In most of these cases, don't involve a lot of money, so they're going to have a very hard time finding a lawyer who's going to represent them. Hmm. Now, I I'm also wondering, uh, would this ruling, does this ruling have a um, wider impact uh, I say, like with the with with the uh, growing momentum in the in the say the Me Too movement, do, does this really have any impact there? Potential impact? 
I think it has a very significant potential impact because so many of the women who are in the Me Too movement are claiming that they've been harassed in violation of Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And normally you'd file a charge with the state employment agency, the, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission at the federal level, and then you'd have the right to go into court to sue for damages. Here, I think the employers are going to argue that all of those cases have to go to private arbitration which will be confidential, they'll be on an individualized basis, and in many of the cases, the workers haven't lost a lot of money because they haven't been fired, they've just been harassed. And while they can get compensatory damages for that type of violation, if it isn't extremely flagrant, they may not get a lot of money, and so they're going to have a hard time getting lawyers to represent them in these private cases, and it will be confidential so that other workers won't know what's going on at this particular place of employment. You know, one of the things that I believe that um, Justice Gorsuch wrote uh, in the majority opinion was that any, any conflict here, I'm paraphrasing obviously, any conflict um, should be resolved uh, by the legislature. Given that with the way the current politics of the legislature is leaning these days, along with the the conservative decision by the court, that's very unlikely. So uh, how do you see this playing out? Oh, I think it's a very, very significant decision because I agree. I would find it very surprising if Congress could get together and the White House would agree with them that they're going to amend either the Arbitration Act or the National Labor Relations Act to prevent this type of requirement that you can't bring a class grievance. They might say you can require them to go to arbitration, but you can't say that they have to do it on an individualized basis. So that's very, very significant. And my guess is now that this case has come down, even more employers are going to adopt these provisions. Many don't have good legal counsel, so they haven't really thought about this. But now almost every lawyer who represents companies, large and small, are going to impose these types of contract provisions for the people who are hired. And, 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 and so I think you, that's a key point you just raised, that this applies to uh, co- corporations regardless of their size. It says, that's correct, yes. Uh-huh. So uh, wh- how does this in, at all impact unions, or could it impact unions? Well, the interesting thing is over the last 40 to 50 years, employers have fought very hard to get rid of labor unions, and what really changed everything was when the air traffic controllers struck during the Reagan administration, which was illegal under federal law, and he fired all of those people, that almost sent a signal to the private sector, you can try and get rid of your union people too. And now we're down to 6.5% private sector union membership. Unions have not been doing a good job of organizing. Most workers today are very individualistic, and they hate saying that they're working-class people. Unions have to become more associational, like the American Bar Association, the American Medical Association. They want to make this look like a professional association rather than a workers' union. And what they need to do now is say, you have no rights, and your employer is going to make sure that you can't bring class grievances, and you're not going to be able to litigate these claims. But if you have a union, we're going to make sure they don't have such provisions in our collective bargaining contracts. And this would be, to me, if I were a union organizer, a key thing that I would try to communicate about when I'm organizing non-union people. 
Professor Charles Craver, Law Professor at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., thank you, sir, for joining me on The Public Morality. That was George Washington University Law Professor Charles Craver. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. And now for my closing remarks. Catnip is a plant substance used for recreational enjoyment primarily for domestic cats. It has the uncanny effect of placing cats in a euphoric state of pleasure, preoccupying them for long periods. Since January 20, 2017, or more likely November 8, 2016, many Americans have been drawn to the strong substance known as trumpnip. This is a powerful, almost hypnotic desire to react, bemoan, decry, support, or cheer essentially every inconsequential act by the 45th president. It is particularly acute in my chosen field of journalism. I recently received breaking news from a major media news outlet on the difficulty they ascertain if the president actually wrote a tweet that contained no grammatical errors. Maybe this is news somewhere in the world, but is it as important as cuts to the CHIP program, rollbacks on environmental regulation, the systematic attempt to privatize more and more public education, or the reduction of the number of individuals covered by the Affordable Care Act? Those in opposition to the president can justify this behavior because it places them under the illusion that they alone stand on the vaunted moral high ground. Whether or not this is true, it reflects erosion of our democratic values and that moral high ground on which they stand isn't much larger than an anthill. Don't look now, but we're not headed in a direction that will lead to that more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron. B-Y-R-O-N at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which can be found on iTunes. My weekly column can be found in the Sunday edition of the Winston-Salem Journal, as well as Politics NC. That's Politics, North Carolina. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, for all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. <laughs>